Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nellie. So we're entering into uh, kind of the, the final times here with Jesus. And I'm, I'm particularly enjoyed this section that we're in right now. This is We're entering into that area, that time right before Jesus is captured, right before he has gone through all of the trials and the persecution. And it's an incredibly rich section of scripture. I think studying what they call the upper room discourse is that huge conversation that Jesus has with his disciples uh, right before he's betrayed, right before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and things just move forward from there. There's this long conversation that Jesus has, and it is just chock full of all of the things that are going on, all the things that Jesus has taught, and he's reminding people, and he's repeating things over and over, things that they should not be remembered, and he's laying some new things in front of them for the first time, and they're starting to understand that for the first time. It's an incredible section. But what's really interesting, too, is while that's happening in the background, you have this narrative playing out of the, the scribes and the chief priests, and they are amping up. And so what we've learned in these uh, previous weeks is that I mean, Mark's gospel tells us that the religious establishment, like those, those, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, uh, they have wanted to kill Jesus for some time now. I mean, you just read it. It was plain and simple in the script. They planned to kill him in stealth. Like they were, they know this is bad. They don't want people to see it so they can get caught and get in trouble kind of thing. And so uh, their murderous resolve, like it had unified. They all kind of came together when he healed the withered man's hand, withered man, withered hands. Wow. <laughs> healed the man's withered hand. Read, read, read what you wrote, Brennan, on the Sabbath. And then it, it dramatically intensified when he cleansed the temple. So like you're talking like just multiplied on top of that. Then it uh, got even, even like more intense after that because now the, the scribes and the chief priests, they're actively looking for ways to do away with Jesus. They are literally scheming on how to kill Jesus. I just want to think about that real quick because we're talking about the religious leaders. These are the pastors of the day of their churches and these synagogues. That is who is planning how to kill Jesus. 
So when he, when he told this parable of the wicked vineyard keepers, they literally, in that moment, they looked for a way to arrest him right then, but they were so afraid of the crowd that they just backed off. And you, hear, you heard it again in the beginning parts of this. So after this devastating verbal exchanges that they've had back and forth, we heard the conversations with the scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees that they came there trying to trip up Jesus. After those happen, uh, they can pretty much hardly restrain themselves anymore. So just as we read verse 1 and verse 2, so it's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the tensions are really, really high. And it's not Jesus just feeling this. All of his disciples and all those who were following and are part of his ministry, they're feeling this too. Passover was an in time, a time of like intense nationalistic pride. It was a huge, a big feeling among all the people because it's a call to remembrance from how God rescued their people from slavery in Egypt. So they came together, this big unified moment to remind themselves of who they are, of what God has done for them. And so uh, it's interesting because in that time, Right during this time, we know from the Bible and from the other Gospels that there's a lot of Galileans in town as well. And what's interesting about that, mo- that comment is that they were known for being easily riled up, like even to the point of violence. And so you have like all of these little bits of pieces of information that the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and all of the religious establishment are looking and taking into consideration when they're trying to get rid of Jesus. It's a really interesting time. And so, however distressing, however frustrated they are, the religious leaders at the time would have to bide their time because the right opportunity is just not there yet. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, Jesus, having left the temple for good and having delivered his great Olivet Discourse that we just read some of his teachings that he had regarding the judgment of the temple and then the final advent, all, he had retired and left to Bethany on the southern slope of the mount, about two miles out of town. And there he accepted an invitation to dinner at the home of a man called Simon, Simon the leper. So who, who is this Simon? So there's, there's, there's lots of speculation, but the going and most like, agreed upon one is that um, he's probably someone who's been healed by Jesus. And this is like a uh, thank you, uh, appreciation dinner moment. So he's put this on, he's invited people, and like, can, you just, can we just imagine real quick that Jesus had healed you of something that would only fall into a miraculous category. And we're just talking ridiculously miraculous, like night and day difference. And you had the opportunity to thank him for it, like, and you're just throwing him a dinner. Like, you're not throwing together sloppy joes for Jesus. I, I just wouldn't feel right doing that. I mean, mac and cheese is great for me. I'm happy, I'm happy with the hot dog. Like, we're, I'm, I'm about as easy as it comes, but like in that moment... Like, I'm trying to find someone who knows some good stuff. Like, I'm calling the maybes. I'm getting some, some good beef or something like that. Like, I'm, I'm going as high as I can. Lobsters, everyone, lo, everyone gets a lobster. Like, I would, it would just be lavish. It's a way of thanking him because nothing that I could do could ever be enough. And so whatever the reason, though, that he actually is, is bringing Jesus to this dinner, whatever the reason for doing that, uh, he invited some really excellent company. So just uh, this is who is at this, at this party. So the Apostle John, in his similar account in the Gospel of John, he tells us that the magnificent women Mary and Martha are both there, uh, that resurrected Lazarus is chilling at the table. Cool. Got some questions for that guy. Um, like along with all the rest of the disciples, like, even just that in and of itself, like, if I'm sitting at, at dinner with Lazarus, like, I'm sitting right next to him, bro, what was it like? 
What did you see on that other side? What, what's it, what did it feel like? Is it good? Like, can I get excited? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Like, you know the disciples are doing that. Listen to all the silly questions that they ask Jesus all the time. Of course they're going to ask Lazarus stuff like that. I would. And I just love that moment. You've got Mary, you've got Martha, you've got all the disciples. You've resurrected Lazarus sitting at this table in an appreciation event for Jesus. So he'd brought together these ingredients for a very terrific evening. So Jesus would be free from tension amidst people who loved him. And no doubt that will went very well. So, I mean, just imagine those questions that, that we could have asked that could be going on around the conversation. Like, I would just, to be the fly on the wall moment. Like, I'd just, I'd, I'd die. Plant, plant me a little microphone, we'll record it, and I'll just drool over those conversations. As they're reclining, though, they witnessed a remarkable event that would never be forgotten. It says, a woman, John's gospel reveals that this was Mary, Mary Magdalene, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. John actually adds on this that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That is an astounding moment huge, all the preparations you've gone into putting together this congratulatory thank you dinner for Jesus. And someone walks in, and you know who it is. Everyone in there knows who it is. And everyone knows what kind of life this person has lived. And when it comes to an event that is put up to be like a safe place for Jesus to be, and in walks someone who is from the other walk of life, in the Gospel of John, it refers to her as a sinful woman, a woman of the city. She had a sinful life. She walks in. I mean, conversation had to stop. Every conversation had to stop. And they're just looking at her. But just look at this, look at this moment. Mary, who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's how she's described. Unexpectedly approached her reclining Lord bearing a priceless alabaster vial of imported Indian perfume, very likely some kind of a family heirloom. That's how expensive this is, some, something in that category. She snaps the narrow neck of that flask, which is forever broken. It's open. It's a one-time thing. It's now open. She poured a generous portion on Jesus' head, anointing him, and she poured the rest of the contents on his feet, humbly worshiping while wiping his feet with her hair. I have received a handful, maybe over the course of my life, of just incredibly well-written, heartfelt thank you letters. I would say I'm grateful enough to, 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 to say that's true. I've just read someone pouring out their heart and their gratitude and their thankfulness to you. It's super touching. This is a whole new world. This is a whole different game of thinking and bringing a gift to someone from like the absolute outpouring of the total feelings that are going on in her heart. This was an intensely fervent expression of devotion, as fervent found in anywhere in all of Scripture. We can assume that due to the intensity of her like just laser vision focus upon Jesus, that she had given no thought to what others had, had thought about her. And I think we've all been there. You've done something in the moment where you're like, hey, there's just nothing else that's getting in, in the I, No other comments, thoughts, perspectives, or critiques are stopping me from doing what I'm doing right now. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. But like, you know what I mean. 
she's doing this. She is doing this with all that she has. And thus, she was probably mortified by the unexpected response of these disciples. So here again, the Gospel of John gives us a little bit of a further insight because he tells us that even in this moment, Judas Iscariot, the keeper of the money bag, and soon-to-be Jesus' betrayer, which we just read, originated the objection which the others picked up. So he was the first one to kind of make this comment about what Mary is doing. And here's what he says. Mark says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, verses 4 and 5. Judas, with calculator in hand, a man who knows the price and value of everything, uh, and the, also at the same time the value of nothing, he instantly calculated the waste in terms of the economy, and it probably would have been somewhere around $25,000 to $30,000 nowadays. That's how big of a deal we're talking about. It wasn't like someone walked in with like some like, brute cologne and was like putting it on Jesus. I got this at the CVS on the way over here. I didn't know what to bring, so I just brought some cologne. This was huge. That's why they, a lot of the commentaries really just say, it's, this is most likely like a family heirloom. This is a big deal gift, an honor of the family that they would have. So besides that, there were people in need of food and clothing in Jerusalem at that very instant. And here's what's interesting about this time. It was customary. This is a customary thing during the feast uh, or during the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's customary to give gifts on the evening of Passover to the poor. So there's context to the objection. You guys ever like heard someone who like makes the objection to something, but it's not really the main point, but they're using that as the reason why there's an objection? Yeah, but remember, there's this thing you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to do to give to the poor today, and you could have given that to the poor. You know, like there's a way you can like claim something and use that as the crux for why what this beautiful thing that is actually going on is wrong. So, and, and let's just be honest, that would have been a life-changing gift. Can you imagine? going down to like Union Mission Gospel in Fort Worth and handing someone a check for $30,000. Don't go there to where your head is. Your head goes to skeptical. Well, what are they going to do with that money, Brandon? Yeah, okay, stop. We're talking about changing someone's life. That gift has the potential to impart a brand new life to someone. And that's kind of what, what Judas is doing in this moment. He's saying, whoa, why are you pouring this on his feet? It's wasted. It's all over the floor. Now it's gone. We can't use this. We could have given a huge gift to the poor. Now it's gone. Sinfully wasted and all that's left is this aroma just coming up from the floor. Here's uh, an interesting uh, translation. So the Greek actually gives a really cool phrasing to explain this because when they said they scolded her, here's how it translates. It says that they snorted their indignation like angry horses. <laughs> At least that's what I got in my head. But, but angry ones. <laughs> This one better. But can you just imagine? The Holy Spirit has done something in your heart, something to do for the Father. And you've said yes, and you're embarrassed, and you feel incompetent, and you're terrified to go and do this thing. And you walk into a private dinner where he is, and you do this beautiful, fantastic offering and love gift for him and his disciples, who you wish you were one of, make fun of you, bring you down. 
I can't help in that moment but think how many people don't come into church because they think that's how we're going to treat them. Well, Mary felt the full brunt of that this moment. How humiliating that would have been. Disciples thought they knew the mind of Jesus. We could probably just leave that sentence as covering the entire of the disciples. Like, they thought they knew the mind of Jesus, but they were very badly mistaken because here's what happens in this moment, and here's where uh, the meat of what we're going to talk to today is going to come from. Jesus puts himself between them and Mary. And he instead takes up the role of the defender to their attacking comments from their heart. And here's what he says. He says, truly I say to you, this is verse 9, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now look, I, like many other people, maybe you as well, I struggle sometimes with still like wanting fame or something or glory for myself. Okay, I'll take away sometimes and say a lot of the times, maybe most of the times. Like it's a struggle. It has to die. It has to kill off to that. But I'm just telling you, I would love for that to be said of something I've done for Jesus. And I want to say it's coming from like a healthy place, if that makes sense, you know? Earlier it described Mary as someone who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. Put that on my tombstone. Brandon loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good with that. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, world, Jesus says, what she has done will be told in memory of her, and we're doing that right now. We're celebrating a faithful obedience that Mary made from the Holy Spirit for Jesus right now. Also, this is, this is our big, this is Jesus, this is our Lord, giving us this example to follow, this, hey, if you're wondering what things are pleasing and good and honoring to me, the Father, this This right here, this is it. These words will plumb any submissive heart. And I hope that they will take the measure of both mine and yours today as we sit under his word because we need to be like this. This should be the goal that we're striving to be. So how did Jesus come to Mary's defense? Here's what we're going to get into today. Uh, He began by affirming that what Mary had done was beautiful. Leave her alone, he said, verse 6. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So here's what we're going to talk about. Today we're talking about the gifts for God are beautiful. The gifts for God are beautiful. So why did Jesus call her gift beautiful? Well, here's the first thing we'll look at today if you're taking notes. Uh, First, because God is aware of of your motives. God is aware of your motives. This is an amazing, amazing gift that we have with our Father. So Paul tells us, this is 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that if we have the greatest of gifts, if we sacrifice all, but we do not have love, it comes to nothing. We've heard this many times. If you do not have love, then what you have is nothing. Love makes our gifts pleasing to God. And here's a little story I want to tell you to make, make this sense. My, my grandmother, she passed away in 2017. We called her me mama, even though that was the most difficult phrasing to say for a child. Me mama, mama, me, me, me. And so uh, it was a, a fun comment to, keep, to continue on. But uh, I was about six or seven years old. 
Uh, she had just gotten remarried, and she was at this house, and her and her new husband had gone on a honeymoon. They went to Acapulco. I don't know why in your later years, like you want to go scuba diving, those kind of things, but they did. Parasailing and everything, Beatrice Lolita Steele's hyphen miles. Yeah, yeah, that's her name. I'm just saying, like, they were just going, so they had this amazing time. While they were there, they had this dinner with a family that they knew who kind of lived in the area. And so they sat down, and as a gift, they gave her this beautiful family plate. So their family had specific plates made for their family to give to other people as a gift. And so it had all these uh, gems, like beautiful, like turquoise kind of stuff into it, and it was like almost like mosaic-looking, beautiful artwork, not painted on there like someone did this. And uh, she had this little place that she kept uh, this gift on a little mantle, and it had a little, like a little plate holder, you know what I'm talking about, little things that sit all weird and stuff, and you know what I mean, I say weird and stuff, but I just never had any. But like, so just sitting there on display for anyone to see and enjoy it. And so I knew that me and Mama loved this gift. And so I thought that I would give it to her as a gift. And so I took the plate off, I went to the backyard, I shattered the whole plate, all the pieces were everywhere, and I grabbed some paper, a big old piece of construction paper and some glue, and I started making my own little design for my grandmother. And I had I'd put, you know, um, the stick glue with, with the cotton balls for clouds, because that's high art. And, and, you know, and then placed the little pieces all over the piece of paper. And I wrote my name on it, which wasn't even spelled right. And who knows how I spelled me, Mama. And then I went to me, Mama, and I handed this to her. Me, Mama, hey, here's this gift. I made this for you. And she looked at it. And she said, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Thank you so much. Did you do this all on your own? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I took it and I broke it and I put it on and I used the glue. Oh, I see. I know these clouds up here. Mm-hmm. You got that because I made the flowers. Okay. Yeah. And then you wrote my name. I did, yes. In 2017, when she passed away, all the family was over at her house and we had a, an estate sale for all of her things. And so we're going through all of the stuff that needs to stay in the family. So we're going through her jewelry box, which was substantial. And in the bottom drawer, folded up nice and neat, was a piece of construction paper with a whole bunch of terribly ordered pieces of what obviously was once a beautiful plate. And there on the bottom was my name scribbled on weird handwriting and me mama's name with a little of the cloud still left over. If the house burned down, that was probably something she might have taken. Maybe not that exact one. But there's value in that gift because my grandmother knew the worth of the motive of my heart. I loved her so much. I found the thing in the house that was the most beautiful thing that I could find and I made it into a gift so I could give it to her. I didn't ask. But that is what pure, innocent, unadulterated love looks like in a motive for a gift. These kinds of things done from simple love, these become treasures for our Savior. They are treasures. This moment is a treasure for Christ. Look how he immortalizes her gift. Wherever the gospel is presented in the whole world, people are going to know that this right here, this is where it's at. They're going to recognize and they're going to celebrate 
They're going to try to strive to aim and be just like this kind of gift-giving person to our Father. Correspondingly, though, things done without it are futile. Like if I have the most beautiful art that I've ever created in the world, I don't know why you would think that I would create art, but let's say I did and do, and it's the best work I've ever done, and I begrudgingly give it over to someone, and I make sure that they know I'm, I'm really upset about it, I'm not really happy, and I give them like a 25-page paper that shows how to take care of it, and if I ever come over to their house and say not taking care of it, I'm going to yell at them. Like the difference in that moment is I don't want to give the thing that I've done. I want that thing to give me glory. I want it to prompt me up. Those kinds of things. Mary's gift is beautiful because it came from a beautiful heart and it came from a beautiful motive. God is aware of your motives. The second reason that it is beautiful, gifts are beautiful when they come from a spontaneous response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This is something I wish, hope, and pray for every single one of us. Wish, hope, and pray this for every single one of us. Here's something that John Calvin said a long time ago about this, about the specific area. He said that she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. She was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. She knew that she was supposed to do this thing for God. The Holy Spirit led her to do so for reasons that she would only know in eternity. Can you imagine that moment when you feel like you know that what you're supposed to and you're like, wait, hold up. You want me to go into the family vault and get the thing that's like the most treasurable, the, the, the most valuable thing in, in, in our whole family? And you want to take that and forever use it and break it and it's gone, it's done. And I, I'm going to pour it on what? I'm going to wash it with what? That sounds crazy. That sounds crazy. She didn't understand why. She just knew who it was coming from. The Holy Spirit led her to do so for reasons that she would only know in heaven, least of which was to be a forever example for the church universal. Like us, we are sitting here learning and listening from her example. This is just, um, uh, I just think, a, a truth statement that I just think should rumble around in the tumbler that is our, our hearts, hearts and brains. Among the tragedies of our lives, among the tragedies of life are times that we are moved to do something for our Father and do not do it. I think that is just an absolute tragedy. And I think, if we're honest, we're just going to say, I'm pretty guilty of that. Instead, what happens is we yield to something more like common sense or, well, the busyness of life. Yeah, I should go and, and, and write this letter to this person and just say thank you. But I, I you know, I don't have the time. And I got a football game coming on pretty soon. And if I don't move my tight end into my new position for fantasy football, I'm just not going to get points this week. I'll tell them later. Two years later, hey, I was supposed to write so and so that note. We ignored this impulse to write a letter of appreciation or the prompting to tell someone that we love them or the urge to give to a need. And in that moment, the possibility of a beautiful gift for our Father is gone forever. I think the thing that we don't get in that moment is that gift, that prompting of the Holy Spirit that we may be doing for someone else is in itself a beautiful 
gift for our Father. So when they come from a spontaneous response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, gifts for God are beautiful. The third reason is this. Mary's work was beautiful. Works of, excuse me, gifts for God are beautiful when they are not dominated by practicality. It was simply done to and for Jesus with no thought of whether it was practical or sensible. This gift, she wasn't sitting there thinking, well, I could really use this to put a down payment on that whatever. Or I was really hoping that this would be my nest egg for when, you know, what, fill in the blank. It gets really practical when we think of things that we're leaving, when we start this game of measuring and valuing, and I don't know that I really want to give all this kind of stuff to the thing I'm supposed to give here. I think when it comes to things that are practical, and then you hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot that happens that we just want to say, yeah, that doesn't make sense with how I work. You want me to invite someone to this school here? Well, great, I'm not a people person. I don't like skills. I don't even like people. So, I mean, I can think of a lot of ways out of this right now. That's, let me go get someone who does this really well, and they can come and do that thing. But the gift for God in that moment isn't for someone to do the job. The gift is for us to obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That motive of pure love that says, this is terrifying for me. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because I love you. I'm going to do this because I love you. That is the gift. So they are beautiful gifts. They're beautiful because God's aware of your motives. They are beautiful when they come from a spontaneous response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and they're beautiful when they're not dominated by practicality or sensibility. And here's the funny thing about this. Going back to that little me mama story with the treasures that she kept for herself, Jesus has a lot of strange things, I bet, in his treasury. Can we just carry that, 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 that illustration out a little bit? Metaphor kind of story. Carry that out just a little bit like he has cups of water that someone offered him water when he was thirsty. He has the widow's penny. Was given all that she had. She gave all that she had. Broken alabaster vases. Cardboard pieces of paper with broken plates glued on them. The hard question that I want to ask us, and it's not a, hey, we're looking at how many things you're doing right or wrong moment. It's the personal evaluation moment. So the question I want to ask is, has he anything of yours? Has he anything of ours? Am I, am I doing things knowing that they're gifts from the Father? Am I looking at these? Am I evaluating, gosh, that's going to cost a whole bunch I don't know. Am I just too busy? Yes. Yes, Brandon, I'm too busy. Then something's got to die. That's how Lord and I have to come to things when we're just like, man, I don't have time to spit. Like, what am I going to do? Well, I'm doing something. Something is taking that time. Maybe it's a good something. But if it's not giving time for God, then that good something's got to go. Do you feel the impulse to do something beautiful for God. And when you do, do it. And let me just say this part. Say yes before you understand the risks. Because whatever the risks are, 
if the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do it, it's the right thing to do. Maybe you're supposed to feel the hurt of the cost of this thing. Maybe you're supposed to sacrifice something. Maybe it's supposed to be inconvenient for you. Mary had no clue why she was supposed to do this. She had no clue. She didn't know how it was going to play out. She didn't know she was going to be a sermon illustration 2,000 years ago, forward, after. She didn't know. She didn't know. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, do it. Do it. Nike. That, that, this is really it. This, this is the, the best part about this is you don't have to be skilled. You don't have to be gifted, although you have been given many gifts from the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be captain first place in whatever category you're doing something in. If the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do something, then the Father has given you an opportunity to give a beautiful gift to Him as well as someone else. Whatever the risk that is involved in obeying the Holy Spirit's prompting, you should do that thing because that is a beautiful gift for our Father. So next, Jesus defends Mary's actions because it placed Him before everything else. And I love this section. Here's where he goes. This is verse seven. He says, for you have, you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Excuse me. Just wasn't going to come out well if I was talking. Here's, here's what's really interesting. There's some actual sublime kind of uh, irony going on here when we're talking about giving this gift to the poor and then Mary giving that to Jesus. Because here's, here's what's interesting. Mary's gift was really a gift to the poor. She saw Jesus in those ominous days before the crucifixion as the poor man, and thus her act was ultimately an act of kindness, kindness towards the poor. Jesus wasn't rolling around with, with, with tons of money. We know this. We must understand, though, in this moment, it's really important, that Jesus is not arguing against caring for the poor or against social involvement. That's not what's going on here. In fact, the scriptures constantly and, and consistently celebrate the believer's service to the needy. Uh, Matthew 10, 42, and whoever gives one Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unsustained from the world. Uh, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them this, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We know that, but we forget that. We forget that when it's costly. We forget that when it's inconvenient. When I'm doing something else. I got something else going on. You did, God, I put down my weekly schedule. I wrote the whole thing out, and this is not in it. And something's going to have to give up for me to do this. Yeah, give it up. Give, give, give it up. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you, give it up. It is impossible. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible to be true disciples of Jesus and not give 
and not without serving others, sorry. Jesus is not diminishing our obligation to care for the poor. So in saying, whatever you want, whenever you want, you can do good for them, he's implying an ongoing responsibility to help the poor. We are called to do that. This isn't the moment where it's a, hey, you always have to do this thing. God is literally laying down, yes, this is something you should be doing. What she's doing is better. And he gives the reasoning for it. Our Lord's commendation for Mary for putting him above all else, properly understood, condemns this either-or-or approach to spirituality. Well, you can either uh, you know, help the poor and just do like social things and help them, or you can like, just be people who just, just read the Bible and just do those kinds of things, and you have churches who are on both sides of that argument. And some, people, some churches are dying on those crosses. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And Jesus is saying it's both. You are going to care for the needy. You are going to do that. Do that. I've called you to do that. You are also to give gifts to our Father, to worship Him and serve Him. Christians are to worship God and minister to others. You, Christian, you are called to worship God and care for others. One without the other falls far short of the dynamic that Christ wants for us. So Jesus has defended Mary's anointing of him as beautiful because it puts Christ first. And also, it was total. I love this section, and I think this is going to like probably scrape at many of us in our hearts because this is just going, it, it should just pick at us. Jesus said in, said in this verse, he said, she has done what she could. And indeed she did. She gave it all. She took the priceless gift and she gave it all. Mary was not a person of means. She wasn't rolling in the dough at all. But she did, she did give Jesus the most that she could. Like, that's amazing. She gave him everything that she could. And she did it with lavish and loving abandon. Here's the thing about this. Jesus never would have said, hey, she did what she could if Mary had taken that vial, cracked open the top, poured some in some eyedroppers and said, look, you're going to have a drop for your head and we're going to rub it in really good so that it gets spread out so we don't waste, waste the ointment, okay? I'm just going to put a little bit over here and then once we get the body covered a little bit, I'll keep the rest for later because I really want to take a bath in it, you know? Like whatever the reason is, she didn't measure it out. She didn't take the gift that the Holy Spirit had prompted to give to, the, to, to God, to Jesus. And she didn't say, yeah, but I'm going to keep this for me. I'm going to put this right over here because I'm going to use this for later because I really want a new pergola in the backyard. If she had measured out the perfume in begrudging drops, here's a drop for your head, here's two for your feet, Jesus never would have said, she did what she could. And so here's, here's the, like the landing statement that's covering all of this. I'll write this one down or just remember this one if you want to. Complete sacrifice is the only adequate expression for a life that has been redeemed by God. Complete sacrifice is the only adequate expression for a life that has been redeemed by God. I want to share with you guys a conversation I actually just had last weekend with someone. Um, 
<clears throat> my, uh, my daughter Quinn is getting her scuba certification because awesome, and uh, it's going super well, super fun. But I had a conversation with one of the instructors there, mostly because I can't help myself and I like to talk to people. I think you all know that. But it was a really interesting conversation. So uh, uh, he and his husband, Kyle, they're both instructors, and they're amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to know them, uh, and I, I think they're going to be quickly becoming really good friends. I'm looking forward to that. But we got to have a really good conversation about this. And it was, uh, it was just straightforward. Like He kind of just came out and was like, look, I'm gay. I'm a Christian. And he was like, both those things are true. And I was like, okay. And I listened for a very long time as he explained to me the rejection, the hurt, the harm, and the pain that the church in general, that Christians in general, pastors, and everything had thrown his way across just the walks in the years of his life. And they sucked. I'm just going to be honest. To hear them and to be standing there and to be representing Jesus in that moment, it, it hurt. It hurt a whole bunch. What's amazing is, at the end of that conversation, one of the things that we were talking about was this point right here. And I, I just love how perfectly it falls in line because this is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to be a Christian. You can't come to the foot of the cross with your hand closed on some things that you, he can't have. You can't do that. Doesn't matter if it's sexuality. Doesn't matter if it's your job. Doesn't matter if it's the way that you look or feel. Doesn't matter what political party you want to what hill you want to die on with them? It doesn't matter. You cannot come to the cross with things that you're saying, you can't change this in me, you can't have this. A redeemed life of a Christian is one that is completely open. We are dead. It's now him who lives through us. That's what we're told. He is living life through you and I. So you and I, as much as we have preferences, pardon me, those preferences have to die. And that is a beautiful gift to our Father. That's a beautiful gift. They die when we respond to that prompting of the Holy Spirit. When we see that person and you, you just feel like I'm supposed to just go and compliment that person. Hey, thank you for being you. I don't know why, but just you being here today is just encouraging to me. And I just want to say thank you. I hope you have a great day. I hope that wasn't too weird. Sometimes it feels like something as simple as that. Sometimes it's like, hey, uh, you, should, you should really um, look at your finances because this person over here needs, needs some help. And you have some stuff that I've given you, and I'd like you to give that to them. Sometimes it's costly in those different ways. But this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. If that feels scary and overwhelming, yes. The answer is yes. We all feel that. It is scary and it's overwhelming. It's also not a browbeating moment. Our Father's not looking down at you and saying, Gary, come on. I need you to respond more quickly. It's not that moment. There's love, there's kindness, there's patience. He's the good Father. And this is how we give Him good, beautiful gifts, by responding to those promptings of the Holy Spirit. So that's what Paul meant. That's what Paul meant when he wrote this in Romans 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
That's what it looks like for us, guys. Sometimes it looks and sounds like it's crazy. Sometimes it's the last thing in the world you think God would ever ask you to do. Let's just go talk to Moses real quick. I mean, like, it doesn't need to make sense to you. It needs to be coming from the Father back to the Father. That's how a beautiful gift is understood and given back to And We have to ask ourselves these questions. Is my devotion to Jesus costing me anything? Is your devotion to Jesus costing you anything? Let me just poke in there. I'm just going to pry in just a little bit. It's going to be okay. We're all going to make it through, okay? Are you, are you giving God that time in the morning? Are you carving out a little bit of time? Or do you have to get up really early? Yes, maybe you do have to get up really early. Maybe you should go to bed just a little earlier. Is it costing you? Are you committed to, to being in home group? Are you committed to going there and just showing up and being in Christian community, even when it feels like it's just hell to get there? The kids are biting each other. I don't know where my shoes are. I don't even want to talk to these people this week. That's where safety is. I know it, I know it comes across as ideal, but home group is the ideal safety cage barrier. You can, it's the tree trust, the trust of tree. That's where you can go. That's where you can show up and say, well, the wife and I aren't doing good today. We love her and we're going to make it through. But frankly, right now, I just want to throw a shoe at her. You know, it's like you can share what's going on. You're not expected to be perfect. You're expected to be broken because you're broken like the rest of us. But you're all also 100% redeemed and forgiven like the rest of us. Is it costing you something? Is there ever any deprivation? Is it any inconvenience? Is following Jesus inconvenient for you? Or when it is inconvenient, are you saying, yeah, that can't be right? <laughs> Not this version. Yeah, I'm going to, I'll listen to a podcast later. You know? I mean, like, whatever it is. Like, if it's inconvenient, we do this thing. We want to be comfortable. If you've got kids and you have to do something, then you've got to do something with a whole bunch of people. And sometimes they don't work right, right, and it's really frustrating. Or you have to battle. Weak, I've heard you guys. I've heard of the battle of finding childcare. I, it's a, the struggle is real, folks. It's, it's worth it. And I'm not harping on hunger, but it's just a good example. But we have to look at our faith. You have to look at your relationship with Jesus, your devotion to him, and ask yourself the question, hey, is this costing me anything? Because if it's not costing you anything, you're not really devoted that well. That's for me too. If I'm constantly giving a stiff arm to things that are difficult and struggling and hard or challenging or inconvenient or really costly, then your devotion's more to yourself. You're caring more of, hey, that needle needs to be a little bit more towards me this time. It's something that we have to do. She has done what she could. So how about us? How about you? Specifically, an individual, like to each one of us, how, how about you? There's something else in this phrase. Uh, she did what she could, being the person she was, according to her personality and her disposition. I think it's important to acknowledge that. That was what she could give, considering who she was. 
Mary followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Snap went the bottle of that neck, out poured the fortune, down came her hair. Now, we have no trouble uh, dreaming exalted visions, um, but getting from like the heart to the lips or like the head to the, to the hands, from the heart to the bank account, uh, that, it's just hard because the instant cost shows up and we're doing all these mental calculations. And I hate this moment of this message because really what I have to say is, crud, in this story, I'm being Judas. I'm sitting there looking at the, oh, that's going to cost you $30,000. We should give that to the poor over here. And I just want to go, no, I don't want to be that guy. But that's in me. There's a natural cost and analysis to what we're doing. But that fragrance that Mary was giving was so honoring to Jesus and refreshing to others. And it does not come from giving half of our heart or half of our wallet or half of our talents or half of our ambition. God wants us to give everything with all that we are. God wants you and I to give everything with all that we are. Last thing that Jesus does here is he praises the insightfulness of Mary's worship. Remember he said here at the end, he said that she had anointed my body beforehand for, for burial. Though Jesus had repeatedly spoken to the disciples very plainly about death, uh, they had characteristically passed it off or not understood what was going on. How many times had he said that and you're like, he just told you he was about to ascend to the Father? I mean, like, come on. The concept of a suffering Messiah did not meet their expectations of the Messiah. The things that Jesus was and did is not what they thought was going to happen. From hundreds of years of perversion of the scriptures, but Mary, yielding to his teachings here and accepting what was going on, she accepted what Jesus said about him leaving. She realized that when tragedy came that she would not be able to do anything, so she did it while she could. She blessed his body with oil for burial. This can very easily, her seeing how this panned out and him knowing her motives. So he says the comment that what she's done is beautiful. She has poured ointment on me. And prepared, I forget what the wording is. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She knew what was going on. She caught on to what was happening. Here's the amazing part about this, guys, too. Uh, when it comes to that part, and this is just visually stimulating for me, when Mary is using her hair to wash Jesus' feet. Here's what contextually and culturally is going on in that moment. Jewish women considered their hair a part of their glory. It was very important. Mary letting down her hair and drying and washing Jesus' feet with it meant that all her humanity, all of her glory was his. She used her hair, a sign of respect and honor for herself as a Jewish woman. So she took all of that glory that was for her with the broken vial, the family heirloom, poured that ointment over him and used both to lovingly bless him with a beautiful gift. I just don't think that we can ever really know what the ultimate significance of your devotion or your service or your gift to God is ever going to be. I mean, I've had a, a couple of students who were in my youth ministry over the years, who mentioned a comment 
I forgot about. Like, it was an off comment. I don't even know where it came from. I don't remember saying it. Even when they said it to me, I was like, yeah, that's not me. I mean, I'll take some credit, you know, but no, I didn't say that. They're like, no, you did. I took notes. I was there. You did this little thing, and you were being all goofy. Then you said this line, and it broke my face. And I was like, oh, okay. But we never know. We never know what the full playing out of the gift that you're doing for God is going to do. When we share the gospel, someone coming to Jesus is not your responsibility. The Holy Spirit does that work. That gift of obedience and love and service towards Jesus and faithfully obeying what he's doing is beautiful, so honoring, so honoring to our Father. But the work and what happens, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't need to know what's going to happen. We need to respond in faithfulness. The widow with her penny never dreamed that anyone saw her offering, let alone that that would be memorialized for two millennia. Those who feed or have fed the hungry never knew that they were feeding Christ. Mary had not the slightest idea that more he more would he whoa, I wrote this sentence wrong. That more he would do for the poor with her wasted perfume than 10 million times 300 denarii they would have gotten for it. He was going to take that and do so much more, so much more for the advancement of his kingdom and his gospel. Jesus said in closing, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And again, I want to end on, we're doing that now. This is why Jesus said this. It's why it's in our scriptures that now, 2,000 years later, we can look at this. We can look at this example and say, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow that example. Her story is a part of the gospel because she was a demonstration of what happens in a life touched by the Savior. And that's why it's in Scripture. So can I just end with this? Let your life be a demonstration of a life touched by the Savior. Let your life be a demonstration. Say yes when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do something. If it sounds crazy, it's probably accurate. Like that, It might be a good little, oh, that's probably him. What does her magnificent example tell us Jesus wants from us? Well, he wants something that he finds beautiful. Beautiful because of its motivation. A cardboard box with pieces of a plate glued onto it, a couple of tiny copper corn coins, an empty flask, artifacts of a broken heart that's now his forever. Beautiful because it comes spontaneously from our hearts at the promptings of the Holy Spirit, done solely for our Savior's glory. He wants you and I to put him before anything else, even the poor. He wants us to do what we can. He wants every last drop. Let me just read this uh, two lines from a poem written a long time ago by a guy named William Woodsworth. It said, High heaven rejects the lure of nicely calculated less and more. The idea of this poem was to poke at and to discourage the measuring of our gifts that we give to God. Are we to count the cost? Absolutely. Are we to count the cost and then say no because the costs are too much for what we'd like to accept? No. He wants us to have the courage to follow our hearts as we do what we can. He wants our devotion to be informed by a deep understanding of who he is 
And that devotion, that demonstration of a life that's been touched by our Savior will reflect Him. It will carry on. It has so many unending consequences that our Father is going to use for His glory and His benefit. We must desire nothing else than to prepare our hearts to hear that soft, still voice of the Holy Spirit and to respond with saying, yes. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we thank you so much for your example of love. Thank you for such clear-cut illustrations of what we're supposed to look like in following you. Father, thank you. Thank you for Mary's obedience and giving to you what she could. Thank you that we can hear from you and know that that example is one to be followed and repeated in the way that we can. Father, when we hear these kinds of messages and they're rough and they're hard and usually when we evaluate ourselves in our heart, we just have to say, ah, man, I'm not doing well on that. Father, would you just have grace and mercy for us in this moment while we receive that? Help us to hear and know what you're saying to us and, and not reject it because it's painful or hurtful. Father, please remind us and help us to hold on to your mercy and your grace how you look at us lovingly with patience and kindness. Father, we just want and ask that you would be moving inside our hearts. Come and have your way inside of us. Kill off the things that are not of you and help us to trust and take steps in having a life that is a beautiful gift, a demonstration of a life that has been touched by our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. And we thank you, Father, for all that you have done with us. Would you continue to have your way with us? In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>